The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So hopefully already you've tasted how nice it is to to bring loving kindness to mind. And uh, probably also you've discovered what it feels like to force it or to imitate it and how that ain't it. And also how easy it is to forget the practice, you know, just to get swept away by our habit energies to think about this and that. So there is a particular sweet spot and it's nice to know it because it really helps hold all the different instructions you'll be giving, be, being uh, given. And that is we're we're basically doing awareness practice, but it's a specific awareness of this attitude of loving-kindness. And so the real work and all the technique or all the ways we practice are just different ways to keep loving-kindness in mind. And when it's really balanced and radiant and filling the space of the mind, heart and body, well, we don't really need any technique to keep it in mind because it will be, you know, the big thing, big, beautiful thing happening in the moment. But how about all those other moments where it isn't the big, beautiful, radiant truth of the moment? You know, it's more obscure, it's more faint, it's not the predominant quality of the mind or we're not even sure why we're here. That's where all the techniques come to mind or will be useful. So I wanted to begin, you know, in talking about loving kindness, metta tonight and kind of giving a little bit of an overview of where we're going this retreat. But I wanted to just begin by placing the loving kindness practice in the context of, you know, we sometimes think of the two wings of the Dhamma, the Dharma, wisdom and compassion or wisdom and love. And um, I like to think about wisdom, you know, primarily as that way of being present that is um, deconstructing delusion, like the habits of perception, the habits of thought, the, the ways that my mind constructs meaning, you know, and deconstructing it until I realize, the mind realizes there's really nothing here to grasp, no need to cling, no function for attachment. And love, <clears throat> all the different practices are of love. So. If wisdom is the practice of realizing nothing here to grasp, there's a simile in the suttas of a very skilled butcher who was able to carve all the meat off of the bones, just a little bit of smeared blood on the bones, and the dog is very happy to get the bones, but eventually realizes there's nothing here for me. 
there's no reason for me to be clinging to these bones because <laughs> it's just bones. There's no flesh on the bones, no nutriment. That's the image the Buddha uses. It's kind of a somewhat of a stark image. But it's in a sense, it's one important way of practicing. And it's not... And if it's not balanced with love, it's easy to get into this nihilistic, well, then I choose to be disconnected. Why would I want to be intimate? Why would I want to connect with life, with others, with the moment? Because there's nothing here for me. And love is, the, in a sense, the opposite, very similar lesson, but in the opposite direction. There's nothing here to reject. There's nothing here to throw out of our heart. It doesn't mean we don't take care of ourselves. It doesn't mean there isn't tremendous pain. And even if I need to distance myself from some threat, I don't have to hate the threat. Kamala and I were teaching here, I don't know, it must have been five years ago, maybe even a little longer now, and one of the retreatants um, was sitting on a bench up on the hill and noticed the cougar not too far away from them. And uh, yeah, so we want to be careful with cougars and Lyme's disease in Minnesota and uh, COVID and, you know, all the real threats that are there. But we don't need to hate. We just need to, like, can't love that compassion, self-compassion, and wisdom, can't that help us ne negotiate threats and pleasures in life? It's funny how we've gotten to this place where we tend to, tend to equate love, kindness, with stupidity, <laughs> you know, like letting people take advantage of us or something like that, as if they were synonymous that because I'm cultivating love, I'm at risk for not knowing how to navigate relationships or rattlesnakes or, you know, COVID or other things in life, cougars. So that's uh, it's a useful way of understanding how we really need wisdom to help us understand that even as our heart, we experience that capacity of the heart to open and to include and to feel connected and to just sense that generosity, the heart that cares about everything. Of course, we start where it's easy as Kamala guided us this afternoon. But as you heard, you know, we're moving widening circles, right? All beings, even the difficult beings. So even though there's this capacity that we're uncovering to connect and include and wish well, we're not, uh, we're not confused by that opening, like thinking that it involves attachment or preference Right? Wisdom really is essential, that wisdom of non-attachment. Otherwise, love 
veers off into its near enemy of attachment, attached love. And we'll talk about that later in the retreat probably. And in the same way, wisdom needs that capacity of metta, of loving kindness. As I mentioned just a few moments ago, you know, if we really start to realize how uncertain, unreliable, ephemeral, insubstantial, not worthy of grasping everything is, without a balanced wisdom, a wisdom infused with the intimacy of love, then it it might lead the mind wrongly to like, I'm out of here. You know, somehow, some way disconnecting some version of nihilism. Or what's the point? There's a, this is from Sharon's book, but it's a well-known quote that she's repeating in her wonderful book on loving kindness, even though it's been out for quite, quite a while now, probably, I'm guessing, close to 25 years. Um, loving kindness, the revolutionary art of happiness. Uh, it's really, I, I find, just uh, still a very relevant book on these practices that we're doing. And she's quoting Nisargadatta, this well-known Indian sage from the last century. This famous quote of his, Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. Between the two, my life flows. And then Sharon writes here, following this quote, I am nothing does not mean that there is a bleak wasteland within. It does mean that with awareness we open to a clear, unimpeded space without center or periphery, nothing separate. If we are nothing, there is nothing at all to serve as a barrier to our boundless expression of love. Being nothing in this way, we are also inevitably everything. Everything does not mean self-aggrandizement, but a decisive recognition of interconnection. We are not separate. Both the clear open space of nothing and the interconnected of everything awaken us to our true nature. This is the truth we contact when we meditate, a sense of unity beyond suffering. It's always present. We merely need to be able to access it, to access it. So even though this is a metta retreat, you'll see, if you haven't already, that it's not like we've left wisdom, you know, back at our house and we're just doing metta practice. We're using wisdom, like how to keep metta in mind, how not to believe all the diversions, you know, all the frustrations, all the voices that want to give up and do something else. Well, that, that's wisdom. And when, when the metta practice gets a little momentum, when we have moments of the heart just naturally opening like a beautiful flower and it's like the lenses of our glasses change and it's like everything's beautiful and we feel connected. It's wisdom that 
doesn't spoil that those moments by wanting to hold on to them. Like, put it in a jar. My universal loving kindness. I got it. <laughs> I found it. That's mine. Don't you mess with it, you know. Or, and we think, you know, something like uh, a memory, painful memory arises or somebody makes a loud noise or something and it's like, you destroyed my loving kindness. It was so universal and so grand. And But how how special is something when somebody sneezes or you know, something, whatever, can interrupt it. It's just that idea that it has to be grasped and held as mine is a misunderstanding. So it's just saying that just as a way of understanding how much wisdom, even though there's, in this retreat, there's this real orientation towards this attitude of loving kindness and keeping it in mind and using a particular system that arose in the centuries after the time of the Buddha about how we can do that. You know, just like Kamala began, the use of the phrases, using individuals that are relatively easy, really combining the practice with samadhi, this, like, keeping it simple so we, the mind knows what it's doing. And it can build some confidence, like, yeah, there's a lot of people to bring to mind, but why not just bring this person to mind? This person maybe is good enough. You know, bringing myself to mind, bringing my benefactor to mind, bringing a loved one to mind. Sure, there are an infinite number of phrases, but maybe these three are good enough. And just keeping it simple so that the heart can build its confidence, like, oh, I think I'm beginning to find my way back. I'm beginning to have some confidence that in the great swirl of our mental activity, wisdom really begins to have confidence. I know the way back to this really wholesome attitude. I know how to find my way back. I just need to be patient. I can't force it. It's kind of like we know there's water here. We've dug the well in this spot enough times we know if we persist, this wellspring comes forward. And that's the idea with the technique, you know, the um, <clears throat> different individuals from basically from easy to more challenging, and the use of phrases and the use, the creative use of mental images involving those people and other memories or other felt senses Basically, whatever supports keeping the heart's capacity, that receptive, open, generous quality, right? That attitude, keeping it in mind. How to keep it in mind, how to be able to return when the mind has inevitably taken one of the off-ramps, right? And then we have this whole form that we can return to while we're walking, while we're sitting, while we're in the dining hall, while we're in our room. And it's, and just as a concentration practice, it's just so useful. Because you know, the mind is just gonna do what it's inclined to do unless we kind of, here, 
This is what we're doing here. <laughs> I know it. You may not always like doing it, but just stick with this. And it's not really that noxious, you know, to be, no one's telling you who to bring to mind. So when we say, you know, bring a benefactor or bring a loved one or bring yourself to mind, it's like there's a lot of room for you to choose somebody that you can tolerate. <laughs> the whole point is somebody easy to bring to mind. Even a four-legged somebody, right? Like a pet. Because the idea is, you know, it's a, we live in a relational world and it's messy and our relationships are messy and they're complex. But the, one of the attributes of loving kindness, of metta, it's uh, almost magical because we think, you know, when we have some sense of the messiness, the complications of our relationships, even with those people we, we truly love in our lives, but it's complex. Like I have a really, I think, healthy relationship with my partner. I mean, not perfect by any stretch, but, you know, we've been together for over 30 years now and it feels healthy. And, uh, but it's complicated. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not like there's just one emotion, pure, unadorned, you know, loving kindness. There, there's different emotions that come up, different attitudes, different wounds that can come to the fore. And that's how it is. But the, the thing about loving kindness that really keeps us practicing is, you know, we're never done. So if we take an off-ramp and we're in some fit of jealousy for a while or some fit of resentment for a while or some disconnection, writing somebody off, writing ourselves off, or whatever it is, it's not over. And that's the, you know, the more moments we see, find our way back and see that capacity where the love, the kindness is real, it's fresh, it's not contrived, you know, it begins to dawn on the mind that we can't ruin it, we can't stain it, we can't break it. It seems like we should because we do, as you know, I'm sure, hopefully you know, you know, the mind does visit those places where we're mean and um, hateful and, you know, whatever else. You know, we, have, we get caught in those negative vortexes as a human being. That's just part of the territory of being human, right? And we don't need to be afraid of it, especially the more we uncover, find our way back. As Sylvia Borstein, some of you know Sylvia Borstein, one of our elders and founders of Spirit Rock, north of San Francisco, and just a wonderful teacher and a really good uh, writer about Buddhism. And she, she has something about, you know, we can always mend a story by writing the next chapter. Like, and that's, that's the thing, we can begin again, and, and we don't have to go somewhere else to begin again. Like just noticing that we've been in a vortex of envy, jealousy, irritation, resentment, disconnection of some kind, 
beginning again is just maybe having metta for like I care about how it is right now. That that state that I've been spinning with is painful and I care about it. May this heart be safe and protected. Because even when we're still caught to some degree, it's possible for the mind to generate the perspective. This is a torment, what my mind is involved with right now. And to have that wish, may this heart be free from these torments, may it be protected. May the heart be happy and peaceful, healthy and strong. May I find a way to be at ease, even with these conditions. The ease in that sense of like having some space, even when the mind is in difficult territory. Oh yeah, sometimes it's like this. And there's that flavor of ease and kindness then. And you know, the four Brahma Viharas, the four divine abodes, it's just that picture and, and the talks that we'll give this week. Tomorrow, Kamala will talk about compassion and I'll talk about appreciative joy on the following night and then Kamala will talk about equanimity on Tuesday night. So we'll cover these four attitudes and the way to think about them, you know, the, the real ground of the heart when it isn't caught up in the habit of aversion and fear. The real ground is this basic friendliness, this benevolence, this goodness. It's the heart that isn't colored by aversion. Actually, that the hindrance of aversion, the Buddha likens to uh, an illness. You know, you're sick with aversion. <laughs> you know how it is. It, and we get in this sort of place when we're sick where we lose perspective. So um, these four qualities of loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity, I mean, it's nice to imagine as a kind of aspiration, maybe these are the only four attitudes or four emotions I need to live my life. I just it's helpful to expand our imagination or open our imagination to what might be possible. Because it, one of the real uh, obstacles we have to find a way to overcome is the arrogant confidence that I'm no good. You know, some version of I'm just an angry type or I just, you know, have a lot of shame or... and there may be some truth to these habits, these negative habits we have, like we might have some habit energy around shame, around anger, around whatever, but it's probably not the whole truth. And so, uh, you know, as we do our metta practice, you'll just see at times when there's a lot of suffering, the momentum of the loving kindness will just have that flavor of compassion, that tenderness. Oh, honey, you're hurting. Or this person I'm around seems to be hurting and I care about you. Or we'll notice some um, retreatant just looking really 
lovely and free and unburdened. And, oh, may your happiness continue. It will be appreciative joy. And it won't be a stretch. It will be just the natural expression of that ground of metta. But now when metta is close to something beautiful, like a big tree or a retreat and who seems to be very free and happy, may your happiness continue. I was thinking that this morning with the fog and the New York Times, I don't know if anybody saw it, just before a retreat, a few days before, early in the week, they had a big article on fog. It was really great. They had great graphics. You can go back and read it after the retreat. But you know, these trees and the whole ecosystem is just designed to capture the moisture of the fog. And I was just so happy before breakfast, you know, in that 15 minutes I walked to the end of the driveway and back and the fog and just the sense of like that beautiful ecosystem, the give and take and the happiness, you know, and it's a bit of a projection, but it's a very skillful projection. And a lot of our metta practice, the technique part of our metta practice is a counterweight to the deep habit of aversiveness and fear. So we, that's why if you feel like it's a little contrived, remember, because of the force mostly of our unconscious habit of being afraid, being tight with aversion, we have to construct something. And in Buddhism, we have metta practice. And it's really bringing the heart into balance. But we need the structure of the practice to realize the heart that doesn't need the aversion. And it, like Kamala mentioned, you know, it will expose the aversion in some ways. I think Joseph had a, a striking image a long time ago. I heard him say this. It was like, uh, I'm sure Kamala remembers this, like cool water dripping on red hot metal. You know, we, we, the cool water is the next loving kindness phrase. And then our heart says, no way. <laughs> you know, like hot, or like cool water hitting something really hot. But drop by drop, and the Buddha says this, drop by drop by drop by drop, the hot metal cools down. That's not what the Buddha said. He says the bucket gets full. But it's the same idea. We just find a way to write the next chapter. May you be safe and protected. May I be safe and protected. Even if we can't get behind it totally, if we could just get behind the phrase a little bit, that's the next drop. Yeah, I feel that a little bit. May you be safe. May you be happy. And that's the next drop. It's like planting seeds that Kamala was talking about. And we're not like... uh, expecting them to manifest. Now we're just content to plant a seed that we have some, if not a lot of confidence. This is a wholesome seed. I don't, I don't need to have doubts. You know, it might get frustrating. It will get frustrating. It will seem silly at times or stupid at times or boring at times. But then we, you know, just with a little reflection, listen, I'm just bringing this person I truly love to mind. And I'm finding the fact that this heart cares. And I'm expressing it with a wish. 
And in doing that, I'm avoiding all those other habits of mind to worry, to be afraid, to regurgitate resentment, right? And I'm, and I'm finding that intention, right? That's how we strengthen intention, is we have to bring it to mind. So don't worry if you lose it, because finding the intention to say the wish in your mind, in your heart, may you be at ease, is what strengthens that. It's like, uh, you know, that line from neuroscience, uh, you know, thoughts that fire together, wire together, you know? So we're kind of creating this way back. It's like a habit. We're making a habit. And uh, this is what's so fun. You just see it showing up, even in this relatively short retreat of five days, you know, you just start seeing it arise on its own. It's not like, oh yeah, I've got to practice, I'm on retreat. It's like, every, it's just like ready to go. Oh, may you be at ease. May you be safe and protected. May your heart be happy and peaceful. May you be strong and healthy. May you live with ease, no matter the conditions. There's a beautiful uh, verse that came from the Tibetan tradition. There's a famous Tibetan teacher, Kempa, who lived in the 1300s. And uh, he, he kind of tied the f- four... Uh, divine abodes, Brahma-Vaharas together. He says, out of the soil of friendliness, right? so metta is sort of the ground, the ground of the heart when it isn't colored by aversion. Out of the soil of friendliness grows the beautiful bloom of compassion. You know, so that gets a little bit more um, attention because it's really amazing that in the face of suffering, something beautiful can bloom. And in later Buddhist traditions, they make a big deal of this flower of compassion because it's truly a beautiful thing. You know, it really stands out in the midst of the messiness and brokenness of life. When you see somebody whose heart is established in compassion, it's an enlivening, enlivening healing, liberating emotion when, you know, in the vicinity of suffering. That's, that's amazing. So out of the soil of friendliness grows the beautiful bloom of compassion, watered by the tears of joy. I like that part. And there's something in metta in all four of these, you know, there's, uh, I don't know if it's in the tradition or a more contemporary teacher, talks about metta as something moist. Do you know, is it in the tradition, the moisture part? Yeah, there's, metta has that, and, and even in the elements, some of you have maybe done the four elements practice, but the water element has, is this flavor of cohesion, like what ties, holds things together. And this tears of joy, right? It's just, you'll feel that in moments when there's a little momentum there's a cohesion, everything belongs. And uh, notice that moist quality as opposed to times when our heart feels really dry 
and sterile. It's different. It's like the opposite kind of flavor. And there's one more, right? So out of the soil of friendliness grows the beautiful bloom of compassion, watered with the tears of joy under the shade of the tree of equanimity. So uh, equanimity has this cool quality. And uh, it's a little bit more meaningful when we remember that these teachings arose mostly in hot climates, you know, the cool shade of equanimity. But there is a coolness like that. It kind of allows love, metta, to really reach its sort of expanded, immeasurable, boundless quality because it, uh, it's like love for its own sake. It, it, it doesn't have a problem with how unworkable and messy everything is. So it's free to be connected. It's free to wish well. And this, as I mentioned last night, like what can creep in is this, uh, you know, in in all kinds of different places in our practice, this habit of uh, thinking in terms of perfection and identifying or wanting to be perfect. And this is what I meant earlier when I was talking about practice and metta, loving-kindness practice in particular, it's a relational, that's why it really works. Because it isn't about, exactly, it isn't about the what we're seeing or what we're aware of, it's how we're going to relate, how we're choosing to relate. And what can get in the way right now, like, however, and it's different for each of us right now, our particular mental qualities, the sensations we're feeling in the body, your perception of the room and your perception of the talk and, you know, your perception of the day you've had. It's all different. But the potential that's there for each of us right now is to be relating to our experience with metta. Like what could actually get in the way of any of us right now just realizing like I care about my experience. I care enough to be close. I care enough to wish well for myself. May this heart be at ease. And just as I wish this for myself, may you your heart be at ease, you know? Like that way of relating to the present moment is always available to us whether you're someone right now having a really difficult moment or you're somebody right now having a really nice moment, we can all, this capacity is there, but we have to remember it. We have to remember that that's a possibility to wish well in that way. And it's in this way that metta really dissolves these very, sometimes very, deeply entrenched habits, you know, being negative, being aversive. But we have to remember there's another way. And that's why I use the, the phrase, you know, arrogant certainty. Like when we're in an aversive state, 
You know how it is, like if we were to talk to a good friend of ours, even a really good friend, but they're really caught in some aversive state, you know, and if we were to say to them, you know, dear one, (laughs) you realize that you can care about the aversion. You know, it would just drive them crazy, generally. You know, like, don't you get that I'm suffering and then you're going to put that Dharma stuff on me or something like that? Because when we're in that aversive state, there's an arrogant certainty, this is the way to be relating when I'm feeling this kind of pain. Or this is the way to be relating when I'm feeling this kind of confusion or having this kind of doubt or shame or whatever, you know, our particular habits are, negative habits are. So one of the things, you know, the reason for the evening talks and the instructions and the structure of the practice itself, you know, the the very strong encouragement to bring one of your individuals, one of the beings that you're working with, bring one to mind. If that person's too hard, back up to one who's easier, right, to the easiest. Bring them to mind. And even if you don't feel like it, say the phrase in your mind, in your heart, and see if you can mean it. Just try it. And try it. Because even if you're not feeling it now, you probably have a memory of having felt the truth of those words, the truth of that phrase, right? Like, I'm pretty sure I do mean it even though I'm not meaning it right now. And even that's kind of meaning it. Like just remembering that you did mean it has some, some power. And it, and it really is demonstrating that, that that seeming kind of truth, arrogant truth of my aversion, that it isn't the whole truth. That it isn't as solid. I think it was Sharon Salzberg in her book, I love this little phrase. Uh, I think it was Sharon who said, mythologies of isolation, (laughs) right? We have these very powerful myths of being apart, being separate, being isolated. And then, then fear and aversion and hate and, oh, poor me, all those sort of aversive vortexes seem justified within those mythologies of isolation. And, and it's just like a different allegiance, like when we're in tune with metta, right, there's a generosity. And that's a good way to kind of, um, like a, a feedback mechanism for the way that you're going to come back, start over, or arouse loving kindness for yourself. That you know you're arousing it when you feel, you rediscover, sense that generosity of the heart. It's an actual, the, the quality or the taste of the attitude of loving kindness is that upwelling, right? It, it's an expansive feeling. The image the Buddha uses, I think it goes all the way back to the, the Buddha, the time of the Buddha, they, yeah, that's right, there's a sutta that has like, uh, I think I have it, I wrote it down. Let's get it right here. 
But they, he uses the image of a conch, you know, those shells. I don't know if you've ever heard one. Venerable <laughs> Analio, a German monk who I've studied with, he has one <laughs> that I think he's learning to blow in to make that sound, because it has a really resonant sound. So the quote is, with the strength of a conch trumpet blower, without any difficulty, goodwill fills the all-encompassing cosmos. Right? Because it has a natural resonance. And in this way, like these aversive states, which can feel so real and so contained and complete in a way, they're just visitors. They're very, you know, seductive visitors. And we can live inside those bubbles a lot of the time. You know, and even when we pop one, we generally fall into another, you know, hitting someone and then hitting ourselves for hitting someone, that kind of thing. But when, when we're, you know, we bump into these teachings from the Buddha and we do the work of practicing in the way the Buddha suggests, we practice of keeping loving kindness in mind and we make the practice our own, you know, that's why that, that poet or that uh, Tibetan teacher, he uses that, the soil, the ground of friendliness, right? There's a, because it's really more about what's not there, the temporary absence of aversion, right? We've, we've removed aversion from the mind and then we're realizing the heart, the mind, free from aversion. And there's a kind of, almost like a synonymous with the space of the mind, the space of the heart itself. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, we're, we've created this practice, this metta practice, but we're really moving into this confidence in the immeasurable, the boundless quality of the heart where we're really seeing the heart that's free from aversion. It's not so much metta, it's just the mind when it isn't colored by aversion. And then it really, that cool shade of the tree, right? We really, that quality of uh, equanimity starts to shine through, whether it's loving kindness or compassion or even appreciative joy, the the moisture of appreciative joy, you know, the, the sort of balance and the coolness of equanimity, that kind of vastness of love. It's not particular to the individual that we've been using as a training, like bringing to mind the benefactor or the loved one, ourselves or a neutral person, difficult person, but it's really all beings and all things even that boundless quality. So we can think about that in terms of the whole spectrum of practice, like different skills that we'll be learning. We have to learn how to arouse it. And so a lot of the instructions are about arousing and keeping what we've aroused in mind. The use of the phrases, the use of the categories, the felt sense of the heart energy. I always think about these three, working with these three anchors. We've got the phrases that we repeat, 
the category or the individual, and like Kamala mentioned, keep it simple. And and then you can always, at the end of a set, or end of a walking period, or when it feels appropriate, open it up to all beings for a while. And then, like Kamala mentioned, you don't feel like your good friends or your rest of your family is being left out or the people you're on retreat with. Then everybody belongs, you know. But in terms of the, you know, uh, creating that structure that so the mind knows its way back, then we have our structure we can just return to. And uh, in a way, we're challenging all of the vortexes of fear and aversion and separation, all the mythologies of isolation, because we're going back to the practice. And we're just like drop by drop. And learning to plant seeds and to build momentum and to not believe the thought that I can't do it here. And as Kamala mentioned, you might have to do some Vipassana practice. But part of that Vipassana practice is not just seeing the particular vortex and sensing what's underneath the unpleasantness of it. Okay, this really hurts, really unpleasant. It's unpleasantness, feels like this. But just to begin then to sense that space of awareness, that balanced wisdom awareness. And notice like, well, that's a lot like metta. You know, I care. This heart cares, cares enough to see it as it is, cares enough to feel what's here to feel. And even if we have to turn away because it's too much, sometimes the pain that has gotten triggered might feel overwhelming. So maybe we'll go look at trees <laughs> or have a mindful cup of tea with uh, two spoons of honey or whatever we might do. Do a lying down meditation in our, our cabin. But whatever we might do, like even that, we might just see that that isn't fear, that's, that's metta and wisdom working together, right? Honey, I care. I care enough to do whatever you need to come back into balance. What will help this heart come back into balance? So part of the reason I'm saying this is don't believe that you've actually left your metta practice. You might not be doing the formal structure that we're teaching in the morning instructions, in the afternoon instructions, but it might be like however you're practicing, part of the practice might see, be, uh, be like able to recognize how the metta is showing up even now. Like even when you're deciding, oh, this is too much, I need to take a walk. Like, oh yeah, that's like a compassionate grandmother saying, honey, we're gonna go take a walk together. You know, it's not like I'm weak, my practice is bad. I'm an utter failure at this practice. I better get the heck out of here before I ruin it for everyone else. But we just see it as like, oh yeah, wisdom and awareness. Because part of what we want to do is learn to trust 
the momentum of wisdom and awareness. And, and what we're doing on this retreat is we're really developing a particular skill set that will be supporting our practice down the road. It's not like a diversion. It's really part of the whole awakening process. So I wanted just to share a few things before we end tonight. I mentioned Sylvia Borstein. She has a wonderful book on the Paramis, Pay Attention for Goodness Sake. <laughs> she has the best titles of her books. And uh, there's that because uh, metta is one of the Paramis, these beautiful qualities of the heart. In the early Buddhist tradition, there are 10 Paramis. And she writes there in the chapter, at the beginning of the chapter, if I make blessing my habit, so by blessing she means this well-wishing, right? If I make blessing my habit, if I meet each moment with equal benevolence, my mind relaxes and all my rehearsed reasons for resenting are redeemed by goodness. The relief of not using categories of affection most favorite, semi-favorite, so-so, not really, and not at all, as criteria for kindness, invites my mind for its own benefit to forgive. Right? And that's the, you know, as we get to know the quality of metta, we see, even though we, we might begin with our benefactor, the easy person, the metta that is aroused isn't really about the benefactor. We've used the benefactor to realize that this heart is capable of goodness, of wishing well. We've just started where it's easy. But when you really look and feel into the actual experience, that upwelling of love, you see that, sure, it will go to the easy person, but it will go lots of places, <laughs> right? Who's ever around, you'll see it just naturally includes. And that's such a relief. Because the opposite, you know, the, the other way would be, I have to keep track. No, no, no. No love to you. You're the not really category <laughs> or not at all category. Have you noticed that? It's like, I notice that a lot with my partner, Wynn, who I love dearly. You know, and but uh, people who've been in a long-term relationship know that you know you can have an argument or there can be frustration. But you know, there we are. You know, we're we, we're both long-time practitioners, and uh, so we'll be there. You know, in the vortex of our argument or whatever, and then there will be that sort of whatever the argument will stop, and we're just there, and because there's a lot of space in our minds from our years of practice, the vortex of the argument just sort of, and there's just that open space, you know? And, it's, and I notice that like, like wait a minute, because what's there is love, love and awareness. That's what's there. I think Deepama says that, right? What's in their mind? Or someone asked Deepama what's in their mind? And, she said something like emptiness and love or emptiness and metta. And you can just see that there. And it's so interesting how, wait a minute, no, no. This love is just for the people I love. 
But we realize, no, it doesn't really, by its very nature, it doesn't have categories. That's why, you know, it's, it's like we start loving moss or whatever. You know, everything looks, have you noticed sometimes, like after retreats, that some of you have done a lot of retreats, and you leave, and it's like everything's beautiful, even ordinary street corners. There's a certain beauty in something that is so ordinary. And uh, it's because what we're seeing, what we're sensing is the heart is relating with metta. It's not about what the heart is relating to, it's really about the way the heart is relating, that well, relating with that well-wishing, that generosity of the heart. Just a couple more sentences here. Being on good terms with all of my life allows me to feel safe and convinces me that loving kindness must be the universal antidote to suffering, that it must be what everyone wants most. Right? And that's that expansive, like when we feel the goodness of metta, we just, it's just this feedback loop. We just, the heart just wants to keep giving it away because the heart delights in that expansion. It, it just kind of builds on itself. And in a way, that's sort of the, how we know wholesome qualities of mind because when we keep them in mind, they expand. And in the same way, that's how we know the unwholesome qualities of mind, because when we keep them in mind in this balanced way, they're diminished. Try keeping hatred in mind. Keeping in mind with this wisdom, awareness, and loving kindness doesn't hold up. Having metta for the aversive mind, our own aversive mind or somebody else's aversive somebody else's aversive or deluded mind, having metaphor for it, right? All of a sudden, something beautiful starts to happen. We're not put off by somebody else's aversion or our own aversion. We understand, oh yeah, sometimes it's like this. I don't have to be afraid. I need to be skillful. I don't want to, you know, get taken advantage of. I don't want to lead on lead the person on in a way that's not helpful, but I didn't need to throw them out of my heart. And so I'll end with a a lovely little, I guess it's kind of a poem. It's called um, Loving Kindness, Hair Braiding Meditation by Polly Trout. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I be well. May I be peaceful and at ease. May I be happy. May my daughter, who wants a billion tiny little braids this morning, be filled with loving kindness. May she be well. May she be peaceful and at ease going to school with a a billion tiny little braids. May her best friend, who got a billion tiny little braids, put in her hair at Club Med last week, be filled with loving kindness. Also her mother, may she be peaceful and at ease. And the woman the mother hired to do all the corn rolling, 
May she be well, may she be happy. May I be filled with loving kindness as I put these billion tiny little braids. May I be peaceful and transcend greed. (laughs) May I also go to Club Med next season (laughs) when the beach will be even more inspiring due to my newly enlightened and greed-free state. May I be happy. May my co-workers be filled with loving kindness as they wonder why I am late for work as I make these billion tiny braids. May they be peaceful and at ease. May my daughter not notice that these braids are not nearly as cute as her friend's braids that got done professionally at Club Med. Or if she does notice, may she be peaceful and at ease about that. Please, for God's sake. May my toddler, currently trying to vie for my attention as I make these tiny braids for her big sister, be filled with loving kindness. May she be peaceful and at ease. May my mother, who did this for me when I was five, be filled with loving kindness. May she be peaceful and at at ease. I wonder why I never thanked her for that. May I remember this day sitting with my daughter, braiding her hair, late for work again, peaceful and at ease, happy. So let's just sit for a few moments. perhaps trusting the naturalness of this heart's capacity for metta. And may all this goodness continue and increase and never end. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.